0: Good afternoon and welcome to The Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon. Uh, We have a live broadcast in order that we can have you call in. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, you can call in and we'll talk about those questions. If you see things differently than the host does, you can call in and we can talk about that too. The number is 844-484-5737. Once again, that's 844 484 And we'll go directly to the lines today and talk, first of all, to Joshua from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Joshua. Welcome.
1: Hi, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a question for you regarding Ephesians 4 and verse 8, okay. where it says, it says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive the captives, and he gave gifts to people. Now, to my understanding, he is quoting Psalm 68, 18, which says, You have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among people. Uh, in Ephesians, it says that he gave gifts, so I was just wondering, why the change?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very uh, interesting difference that's been often noted. Uh, Paul is either... In possession of a different version of the Psalm. Uh, we don't have the originals ourselves. We have copies of copies and we, and we don't have anything ex- exactly from his, his period of time. So he might have had an early manuscript that actually read that way and ours might be changed. Or else he might have been just seen. Yeah, sometimes he's, he looks like he's quoting something from the Old Testament, but he's actually just kind of uh, borrowing the language. Of an Old Testament passage, close enough that it sounds like it's a quotation, but he's really kind of making another point about it. It's not, I have to say, it's not uh, something that everyone would agree about as far as how Paul has, uh, seems to be changing that passage. Um, it says in, uh, in the Psalm that he received gifts from men, and uh, so it would be thinking of Christ, presumably, uh, receiving gifts from men. But Paul, of course, would be saying that, yes, Jesus has received these gifts from men and he's given them to us. So he's given gifts to men, too. Remember, on Acts chapter two, Peter is trying to explain the phenomenon on Pentecost. And he says, yeah, Jesus, you know, who has been who has ascended um, has received this and given this to you. Uh, So the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is something that Christ has received from his father and poured out on the church. And I think that Paul has that concept in mind. Although he's changing the wording of the psalm, he's definitely mimicking the wording of the psalm, but making it a slightly different point. It's not just that Jesus received gifts from the Father to give to men, but rather uh, he, he received them and has given them to men. So he, he turns that psalm into he gave gifts to men. It's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's taken some liberty with the wording of the psalm, but it's not really theologically twisting anything it's almost adding another uh, theological step to the process okay that now that that makes sense and
1: just a quick follow-up question um it speaks later on in ephesians uh just a couple verses later that he says he gave some as apostles some as prophets some Mm as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers um are those some of the gifts
0: that that he would have given to us yes those are gifts that christ gave to men now, uh, you know, Paul, the word gifts is the word charismata, which is the same word Paul uses for gifts of the Holy Spirit. But he obviously is using them somewhat different here, because when he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the charismata in 1 Corinthians 12 or in Romans 12, he's talking about, as it were, abilities or assignment, ministry assignments given to different people. So he gives you know, someone a gift of prophecy, a gift of teaching, a gift of serving, etc., that 's something that an ability and an assignment to a work is given now here there's there 's teachers mentioned and prophets too, but he 's not talking about uh, God giving individuals the gift of prophecy, but rather he gave prophets to the church and he 's not talking about God giving the gift of teaching to certain people, but he, he gave teachers to the church, so those those to whom the gift of prophecy were given are now given to the church as you know um, members of the body that have those offices, we might say, and likewise, those that had received the gift of teaching are now given to the church as teachers. Now, this is not talking as, as some passages in Paul are about the gifts being given to the individuals, but rather the individuals who have the gifts are given to the church at large. So it's the church is uh, rich with gifted people is basically the point that's being made here. And those gifted people oh, are give God's gift to the church.
1: Very good. All right, Steve, I thank you very much for your answer, and thanks for the uh, work you're doing for the body of Christ.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for calling, Josh. Have a good day. All right, day. bye-bye. Bye now. All right, our next caller is Dwight from Denver, Colorado. Hi, Dwight. Hi,
2: Steve. Um, I have a question uh, about Hebrews 9.17. It says, A covenant is not enforced while the one who made it lives. And my question is, why does the New Testament begin with Matthew 1.1 if the actual New Covenant didn't start until Jesus died?
0: Well, yeah, well, Matthew 1.1 tells the story of Jesus and following, and all the Gospels do, although he didn't make the New Covenant until the end of his life in the upper room when he instituted the Last Supper and said, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood, so uh, the New Covenant came at the end of Jesus' life. However, uh, you can't very well tell the story of that until you mention that Jesus had a life, that Jesus lived. You know, you have to tell the story of Jesus as the uh, introduction to the New Covenant. So the Gospels um, and, well, all the documents in our New Testament are New Covenant documents. It's just that the Gospels tell about the history of Jesus' life running up to the point uh, at the end where he establishes the new covenant. Um, so it's like, um, you know, the book of Exodus is about the Israelites leaving Egypt. The word Exodus refers to the going out. But we don't really see them going out until Exodus chapter 12. And that means the first 11 chapters have to give backstory, which actually is something like 80 years of backstory of Moses' life. Um, so the sto- the, we call it the Exodus, the book. Uh, and it is a book about the Exodus. But to get to the Exodus, you have to get some backstory and realize this happened because of the enslavement of Israel and the call of Moses and the miracles that were done and the plagues of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. And then you have the actual Exodus in the story. Same thing with the New Covenant. The New Covenant is uh, a part of the story of Jesus' life. But uh, you don't get to that part until you get to the earlier part. Uh, because if if the New Covenant just started at uh, Matthew 26 with Jesus in the upper room saying this cup is the New Covenant, then we say, wow, okay, we, we've encountered the New Covenant on the first page of the New Testament. Yeah, but if we if we didn't know who this Jesus was uh, or who he's with or why he's doing this, um, it would be rather a, a, a strange uh, problem to us, I think. And so mm-hmm. the, the Gospels do belong to the New Covenant documents. And what we call it... The the book, the New Testament, of course, the New Testament doesn't call itself that. That's what the Christians came to call it. Uh, They are the books associated with the New Covenant, the New Testament, Um, just as the other books before that were associated with the Old Covenant. But not all the books of the Old Covenant are telling about the establishment of the Old Covenant, but they do talk about the the period of the Old Covenant, and the New Testament books are going to tell us about the period of the New Covenant and the establishment of it.
3: Okay, so, the,
0: um, so the, the dispensationalists are wrong when they say that Jesus'
3: life was during the Old Covenant, right?
0: No, his life was during the Old Covenant. Uh, but his coming, when he was anointed at his baptism, which was, of course, the beginning of the last few years of his life, that began a real transition period. Jesus pretty much lived under the terms of the Old Covenant, until he was baptized by John. And then he sometimes did and sometimes did not. He sometimes attended the festivals, sometimes he didn't. He sometimes uh, kept the Sabbath, but sometimes didn't, it would appear. He, uh, you know, he, he did things uh, that seemed to be, in a sense, an ign- ignoring of the Old Covenant. When he let a leper, when he touched a leper, or touched a dead body, or uh, let a woman with the issue of blood touch him, these were violations of what the Old Covenant would uh, require. But mm-hmm. um, he was more or less... Ignoring it because he was introducing the new covenant. his whole ministry of three and a half years I think was the breaking in of the new covenant and so he still mm-hmm. had his he still had his Jewish association even as after Pentecost the church in Jerusalem still went to the temple and things like that they didn't need to but they did uh, because they now lived under a different covenant but they hadn't really processed that or or it may have just been because they lived in Jerusalem and that's what everyone was expected to do um, you know Jesus. When he began his ministry, that's when I think the new covenant um, dynamics were beginning to be introduced. And, okay. and so you know he didn't establish the covenant with his disciples or solidify it until the upper room at the end of his life. But, but I think those three years were kind of a, a breaking in of the new covenants, which, in which Jesus did and did not. Uh, you know Sometimes he did, mm-hmm. sometimes he did not keep the old covenant stuff. But until then, right. in his earlier life, he did does a Jew. Okay. Thank All you right. so much. Okay, Dwight. Thanks for your call. Uh, Cody from Vancouver, Washington. Welcome
2: to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Good. Uh, I had a question about, I was trying to re- help ask if you can me reconcile. Right. We have the four Gospels. Jesus died. They were taking him off the cross. And then that was, amongst other things, a preparation day for the high Sabbath. So he had the High Sabbath, he had twenty four hours. Then after that they say he had a preparation day for the regular Sabbath and then the regular Sabbath. So that's seventy two hours. Some people count the day that he died as the first day, you know, whatever. But what I understand is in the Bible in our modern translations, it says that Sunday at daybreak and Mary was at the tomb. But if you have the seventy two hours and Jesus said he was going to be there three days and three nights it would have been Saturday morning at sunrise. And why she's out carrying a burden and going to touch dead bodies is just another question for another time. But even Martin Luther's well, it after, Bible... From, it,
0: it, it specifically says after the Sabbath. So she uh, she didn't have yeah. to not bear a burden because it was after the Sabbath. Well, I
2: understand that. But given that timeline, which is 72 hours, I mean, I was going to refer to Martin Luther's Bible from 1545. It says Saturday. He keeps using the Sabbath Saturday to describe the day. But on a Marvel, modern Bibles, it says uh, Sunday at daybreak or at day rise. But well, Sabbath, actually, I don't morning, have any Bible.
0: I don't have any Bible that has the word Sunday or Saturday in it. I, the word the first Sunday and Saturday. Sorry. Yeah, first day of the week and the seventh in the Sabbath. Yeah. So yeah. So the the words Sunday and Saturday are not in the Bible.
2: You're right, but I just wonder. It's it, you got seventy two hours there, three days, three nights, well, and I was just wondering right. if you've ever came across that and. Uh, well there's there's several different theories
0: about when Jesus was crucified. Uh, of course, Good Friday is the tradition that Jesus was crucified on Friday and uh, we do know from John chapter 18 that the day he was crucified was the preparation for the Sabbath. It says, now preparation was the actual day that meant Friday for the Jews. They they actually called Friday preparation day because every every week the next day was Sabbath and so they and they couldn't do any work. They couldn't stoke a fire. They couldn't cook food. Uh, they couldn't do anything on Saturday. So they had, on Friday they had to prepare for that. So you know anything that would have to be done on Saturday they had to do it on Friday. So to the Jew, the word preparation day was what they called what we we call Friday. And um, and so we're told in John chapter eighteen that it was the preparation of the Sabbath. Um, uh, and so. Obviously, uh, we've always assumed it was Friday. Now, there are people who say, and you seem to suggest that too, uh, because it was the Passover week, there were additional Sabbaths besides the Saturday Sabbath, because in every festal week, the first and last day of the week is also treated as a Sabbath, regardless what day of the week it falls on. So, if the Passover week begins on uh, Tuesday, for example... Then Tuesday is held as a Sabbath, and the next Tuesday is, too, because it's a whole week of Sabbath uh, festival. The first and last day would be Sabbaths. Now, there are many people who are saying that there was a festal Sabbath on Friday that that year. And therefore, the preparation for that Sabbath was Thursday. And they would argue that Jesus, therefore, was crucified on Thursday, not on Friday. Now, if that's true, then we've got Jesus on the cross on Thursday and, and in the grave at sundown. So it's Thursday day, then we've got Thursday night. Then we've got Friday day and Friday night, that's two days and two nights. then you've got Saturday day. and Saturday night. And if Jesus, even if Jesus would rise before uh, sunrise on Sunday, he'd still have been in there three days and three nights. Or at least parts of three days and three nights, and that's that's generally enough to, to qualify as three days and three nights. So uh, that's one way of looking at it. So many people argue for a Thursday crucifixion. Now, there's also people who argue for a Wednesday crucifixion, and they do the math the same way. They would say that the uh, you know the Thursday that week was a the you know the Passover High Sabbath day, um, and therefore Wednesday was the Preparation for it, and therefore Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, and then they've got Jesus in the tomb on Wednesday and Wednesday night, uh, Thursday and Thursday night, Friday and Friday night, and they have him rising uh, uh, Saturday sometime, uh, perhaps after sundown, and not his grave isn't really discovered until Sunday. Now these theories, I've I've read people uh, writing elaborate defenses for each of these, and uh, I'm not persuaded. Fully, by any of them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me whether he was crucified on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. I wouldn't care what day he was crucified. What does that matter? Uh, The the meaning of his crucifixion is is not tied to what day of the week it is. And its significance or importance is not tied to whatever day of the week. So, I mean, people can uh, knock themselves out trying to prove this or that day of the crucifixion. But to do so, they usually assume that they know the year of the crucifixion. They, and then they, you know, they, they kind of go through the, you know, the calendars going back thousands of years and say, oh, that, that particular year, uh, Passover began on a Friday, and therefore there's a Friday, Seth. Or or that particular, it began on Thursday. Now, these people who have these different theories uh, get different days for starting the Passover in order to justify their theories. But the thing is, we don't even know what year it was. I mean, it uh, t- typically... It is thought that he was uh, crucified on uh, around 30 A.D. But some people would say it was as late as 34 A.D. And there's different suggestions made. So uh, I, don't, I don't really think we can know for sure, since the Bible doesn't tell us the year that it was, um, what, what day of the week the, the Passover began. But why would we care? Now, if someone says, well, we have to justify Jesus' statement, found in uh, Matthew 12, I think it's verse 40, where he said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But it's not necessary to, to justify that as a literal statement, because the Jews didn't use that kind of language literally, generally speaking. To them, if they just spoke about a period of a part of a day, they would call it a day and a night. If there's a series of them, and you had parts of three days, with nights in between, they'd call it three days and three nights. Now, we know that because archaeologists have found other instances in ancient Israel where they did that kind of thing. They would um, A doctor would call for a five-day quarantine. But as you look at it, five, he'd say five days and five nights. But as it, it turns out, it was only really three days and three nights, with a, a bit of a day at, at the beginning, a bit of a day at the end. So they, they didn't speak literally about those things like we do. And it's because people are trying to press Jesus' words into a very literal sense that they have to find some day other than Friday to make his crucifixion. Now, I don't believe Jesus could have been literally three days and three nights of the earth because he said he was going to rise on the third day. He said it multiple times, even in retrospect after it had happened. Paul said that Jesus rose on the third day. Now, the third day is the first day after two days. I mean, you've got... Let's just say Jesus died on Friday. that's the first day. Saturday is the second day. If he rose on Sunday at all, that's the third day. Uh, you know if if he had, if he was three days and three nights literally in the grave and came out after the third n- night, then that would be the fourth day. After three days and three nights, you've got four days, the fourth day. So uh, since he repeatedly said he would rise on the third day, I think we have to take his three days and three nights. As an idiomatic expression, not not a literal expression. So that's how I, that's how
2: I deal with those particular. But so you do you do believe he's speaking idiomatically? Yes, I do. Okay. Can I have one more question about uh, the day? <clears throat> I just want to make sure, I, in your opinion, the the night, the day that he died, and that night when night fell, that was a, a special Sabbath, a high Sabbath. That was a Sabbath like like the Saturday Sabbath, or was it something else? Well, a high Sabbath usually suggests that it was a.
0: Uh, a, a Sabbath Special associated Sabbath, right. with yeah for the festival yeah right, right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: but it was a Sabbath right well just just yeah. one. well yes but the point is that uh, it could have been on a Saturday I mean a high Sabbath could fall on any day of the week and it could have been a regular it says that Sabbath was a high Sabbath so it could yeah. be saying that that Saturday what happened to be a high Sabbath because of yeah. if, you know it had that additional
2: um, you know significance but were you going to oh, make a point you. about that no i was just asking i mean i was just it, it seems like one of those things has just kind of been lost of time and there's so many different opinions i don't really have one to be honest with you. i think the sunday makes the most sense but you know when you read the bible i think i read the new testament once a month and it just keeps coming up and i keep thinking about it and yeah. i thought i'd call you and ask for your advice and i appreciate it
0: all right well cody it's good to good to talk to you thanks for calling all right um Let's see. We're going to talk next to who's in line here, Daniel from Minnesota. Daniel, welcome to the Narrow Path.
3: Hey, Steve. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a friend in the church, and uh, he is struggling with uh, some issue. Uh, So he asked me for uh, uh, my suggestion. Um, So he told me that uh, a couple of years ago he he fell into a sin of adultery and uh, he did not tell his spouse. Um, he continued uh, for almost two, three years, it seems. But then after that, the Lord spoke to him, and then he confessed to the Lord. Uh, now, from last two years, he's struggling within himself whether to tell this to his wife or not. He has uh, children. Uh, both have families, so... I was not sure what I need to tell him, so I wanted to take a, a suggestion from you before I tell anything to him. Uh, can you suggest, uh, or should I talk to him about this issue?
0: Well, this man fell into sin and uh, you know, cheated on his wife, I guess, some years ago. It happened only once?
3: No, he said uh, he a couple of times over the span of two, two to three years. Mm, I see.
0: Well, frankly, I think a a marriage should consist of two people who are totally open and honest with each other and who don't keep secrets from each other and don't need to keep secrets from each other. Now, some marriages are so dysfunctional that too much information may destroy the marriage unnecessarily. And you said there's children and things like that. It's It's a very hard call. I would say... Um, in general, I believe a man should tell his wife about something like that. Um, but there are wives who would not, would not tolerate that, would leave the marriage. I mean, there's uh, unstable women or unforgiving women or something. And a person has to decide, is it, is it more important to have a marriage where there's a a very, uh, unhappy secret or to have no secrets and, and no marriage? I mean, that's, I guess, the hard call. I would think uh, in an ideal situation, a husband and wife should be able to be totally honest about that. They'd struggle. They'd both struggle. The, the wife would certainly struggle to hear about it. Uh, she'd probably, uh, probably feel cold toward him for a while or whatever until she got over it. But, but if she was a godly woman and a forgiving woman and cared about her marriage, she'd probably eventually forgive and they'd get that, get that behind them. On the other hand I've heard of marriages where um, someone confessed something like that and years later it's still it's still unresolved because the the person who was cheated on whether it was the husband or the wife is simply not getting over it and I guess you have to ask we might say well the, the ideal is to be completely truthful about everything including all of that and I would wish to see a marriage be such that those things would be openly discussed and openly Repented of, and there'd be forgiveness and stuff, and they'd go through the hard, hard time over that. But I also know there's people who are very, um, I don't know, uh, not forgiving, not, uh, I mean, I, I do believe that to destroy a marriage is a terrible thing. And a man who cheats on his wife is certainly putting his marriage at risk of being destroyed, and he should never do that. But then, of course, the question is would the, would the woman? Uh, if she knew that, want to end the marriage, and I don't know. I mean, that's going to have to be probably worked out with, within the community of Christians that they live. I, I think that she's going to need to be, if he's going to tell her about it, she's going to have to have some Christian counselors around her to help her deal with it. Um, you know, I've I've known uh, you know men who are married to to non-Christian women who would who would just leave, and and you might say, well, she she, she deserves to be able to leave. Well, what she deserves may not be what God desires. Uh, if, if children are involved and the and man isn't sinning anymore, he sinned years ago and he's repented, I would think that very probably, uh, you know, the marriage could succeed. Uh, but again, whether he tells her or not, that's going to have to be, thats I'd have to decide that or case by case. Now, I don't know his wife. I don't know how strong his marriage is. But I do think that the Christians around them need to counsel them together and and, uh, he may just have to bring it out in the presence of others and others can then kind of help her through. Uh, This is a complicated thing. A man should not ever cheat on his wife or a woman on her husband because that brings up these complications. But I would think that the happiness of the man or the happiness of the woman is not as important as the stability of the marriage for the children. And uh, that's something that throws obviously a wrench in the matter. If there, were no, if there were no children, then he could just tell her all about it and, and let the chips fall where they may. She might leave and so forth, but, but there's, there's more involved than that, it seems to me. So I would say get the church involved that they're involved in, and, uh, and I don't say there's a, one way this would be handled in every case. Listen, I need to take a break. You're listening to The Narrow Path. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. We have another half hour coming up. Don't go away.
4: As you know, the Narrow Path radio show is Bible radio that has nothing to sell you, but everything to give you. So do the right thing and share what you know with your family and friends. Tell them to tune into the Narrow Path on this radio station, or go to thenarrowpath.com where they will find topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse by verse teachings, and archives of all the radio shows. You know, listeners supported Narrow Path with Steve Greg. Share what you know.
0: Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and uh, we're live for another half hour, so we're taking your calls. The number to call is 844-484-5737. Our lines are full at the moment, I think, and uh, so you might get a busy signal, but keep trying. We might get you in before the hour is over. Our next caller is David from Kansas, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. Welcome.
5: God bless you, Steve. Good to talk to you
0: yeah good evening. um
5: My question is about harmonizing uh some of the passages in the New Testament that instruct us as to how to give to those that are needy um mm-hmm. Recently, we've had a situation where I feel someone in our congregation has been taking advantage of of several people for years and hasn't shown any fruit of of godliness. In her life. And so I mentioned to somebody recently Galatians chapter 6 and, uh, and verse 10 where it basically says our focus should be mostly on those of the household of the faith and that I have reason to believe that this particular person really might not even be a believer. But
0: uh-huh.
4: I was responded
5: to with, uh, with Matthew 5, <clears throat> pardon me, in uh, verse 42 for example where Jesus says, give to him who asks. Oh. And and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So how do you harmonize passages like that where Jesus seems to say, Give indiscriminately, bend over backwards for even your yeah. enemy in love well, people, and then the instructions?
0: Yeah, people need to understand the degree to which Jesus used hyperbole in his teaching. You know, when he said, You need to hate your father and mother and wife and children to be my disciple, that's a hyperbole. When he said, Um, when you pray, go into your closet and shut the door so no one hears you pray. That's a hyperbole. The point he's making is you should pray privately if, uh, it, so that you're not you know, doing it to be seen by men. On the other hand, Jesus prayed in front of his disciples, and the disciples prayed publicly in the book of Acts, chapter 4. I mean, there's, in other words, Jesus would say things in absolutist terms. Even when he said if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Well, okay, so you, let's say you do turn the other cheek, and then they strike you on that one. What then? Well, do you have to keep turning the cheek, or can, or, or do you even have to wait for someone to strike you? Can you walk away before they do, or as soon as they do? Um, you know, Jesus did tell his disciples in Matthew 10, when they persecute you, and once they flee to the next, you don't have to just sit there and be pummeled. Jesus is giving a, t- a radically different teaching uh, to how you know, his disciples should relate to their fellow man, and he makes absolutist statements, which there's, there's no way that they should all be taken uh, as, as less than hyperbole. Hyperbole means an exaggeration, of course, to make the point uh, emphatically. When Jesus said, give to everyone who asks you, and I think that's how it reads in Luke 6. It's the same statement that's found in Matthew 5. Give to everyone who asks you. Really, so uh, whenever your children ask you for something, you should give it to them? What if it's not good for them? God doesn't give to everyone who asks him. I know Jesus said, "Ask God, and it'll be given to you." But but then He says, "Good gifts." You know His your Father will give good gifts to those who ask Him. Uh, that people might ask for something that's not good for them, uh, or it might be that, as Paul said, if someone will not work, they shouldn't eat. In which case, that would that would uh, modify an obligation to give to them. If someone refuses to work and they say, "Well, listen, can't pay my bills because I'm you know I've been watching TV all week and uh, or all month and." I don't want to work, uh, so would you pay my rent? Well, they're asking. If you're supposed to give them and ask you, then you, you end up enabling them in a lifestyle of irresponsibility that that is disobedient to God. You're sponsoring a sinful lifestyle. That's why Paul said, if someone won't work, don't feed him. Uh, so obviously, when Jesus said, give to everyone who asks, uh, he also said, by the way, if a man sues you at law to take away your cloak, uh, your coat, give him your cloak also. This, again, is a hyperbole. The idea is, uh, you know, be generous rather than stingy. If someone, uh, if someone, if you owe something to someone, they're going to court to take it from you. Gladly give it to them. Give them more. If, right. if implied, if that's the loving thing to do. You're supposed to love your brother. That's the point he's making in that whole section. Is love your neighbor. Love your enemy too. Now, if you're the idea is that you're not supposed to uh, be looking out for yourself against the interests of your brother, even if you have the right to, uh, even if the right to your own stuff. If your brother has need, you know, it says in, in 1 John, if you have this world's good and see your brother have need and don't help him, how does the love of God dwell in you? So the point is, give to everyone who asks. If someone wants to sue you and take away your coat, give him your cloak too. Um, turn the other cheek. He said, if someone makes you go one mile with him, go two. Well, you know, that would that would be if you don't have any other obligations, perhaps. I mean, uh, you do have to go one. If You know, you can be generous and go two, assuming you don't have something else that you need to do. But there would be times when you would have to get back to your home and take care of your family or whatever. So the, the point is, Jesus used hyperbole a great deal. Um, mm mm-hmm. And and that's what when he says, give to everyone who asks you, that is modified by other statements in Scripture or qualified. And so I would suggest that uh, our obligation in giving is to be a good steward of what God's given to us. And one thing he's told us not to do is to support uh, irresponsibility. If someone won't work, well, we're not going to underwrite that lifestyle. That's a sinful mm-hmm. lifestyle. You know, if a person wants to take money from you and go buy and pay for prostitutes uh, or go out and get drunk or what like that, of course you're not going to get support that. You, that's not that's not what Jesus meant when he said give to everyone. He's talking about people who are poor, who, you know, are in, in those days, people who were poor, who would beg, were really poor and had no choice because, uh, as the Bible actually says in the New Testament, people were ashamed to beg. So if they were begging it's because they were usually disabled or had no ability to work. You know, if they begged, they were at their wits' end, or at their financial end, at least. So if we're talking about an able-bodied yeah. person who's uh, regularly uh, asking some, you know, responsible person to underwrite their lifestyle, that's not what Jesus is saying. And it's not good right. And Steve, how do you
5: generally feel about Christians giving to charity? I recently read... A book um, entitled Toxic Charity and yeah, raised up some points that were very interesting. Do you have like maybe some general thoughts on that?
0: Oh, boy, that's a complicated thing. Um, there's, mm. um, yeah, I mean, there, there's been a number of documentaries and that book and a follow-up book he wrote, Detoxified Charity, I think it's called, uh, or talk, Charity Detox, I think it was called. Um, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of things have, have come out showing that when you give to charity, you know, you feel like, okay, I'm, we're rich in America. In Haiti, the people are poor. They they need our help. Well, they they do need our help sometimes, but they don't need to be uh, – people who can work and can make a living uh, don't need somebody to take away their incentive to do that. And many times in third-world countries, uh, the, the American and first-world charities are underwriting, again, people's uh, lives – I mean, there was a, a, a great example. Is there was a documentary? What was it called? Uh, something Inc. Was it was it called Ch- Poverty Inc.? Yeah, you can see it on YouTube. I think it's called Poverty Inc. And it was a documentary about charities. And uh, there was a company yeah. called Tom's Tom's Shoes. And Tom's Shoes had a policy there in America. They said every, I think for every pair of shoes you buy, we're going to send a pair of shoes to, you know, the third world. I think it was Haiti or something like that. And so. As it turned out, they brought these truckloads of shoes down to Haiti and gave them out to people. And as a result, the shoemakers in Haiti went broke because everyone got free shoes. Whether they could have afforded to buy them or not, they got them free. And uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then the guys who made their living making the shoes, uh, they, they just went, they, they lost their jobs and they had to live on charity too. Uh, you know, many times, charity, given in a, in a foreign country, it interrupts the economic system, and there are things, there are times, uh, this Toxic Charity book was saying, I think, that there mm-hmm. are times when we need to help people in an emergency. Uh, there may be a famine. There may be a tsunami. There may be something that makes it impossible for the farmers to produce food or for, uh, you know, people to be housed, and and when, you know, charitable groups go in and build houses for them or, or bring in food, uh, it shouldn't be, okay, from now on, we're feeding you guys, uh, because then... Farmers don't have to till their fields anymore. They, everyone eats for free, and mm-hmm. and this happens. I mean, there there are documentaries about how this has happened. Whole that, size that charity from America has sometimes ruined the economy of the country yeah. they're trying to help. So it's a very hard thing. Now I do believe uh, I give to charities, uh, and I also give to people who I know who are in need. I, uh, but I think that uh, the, the charities I prefer to give to are. I'm hoping helping people in, um, you know, emergency situations. Uh, we should help people through an emergency. But once the emergency is over, once the tsunami's passed and, and they should be rebuilding, and, and <laughs> where most uh, what well, most societies would be rebuilding their society, uh, people can just stay indigent and they can stay dependent. And, and it just makes them a a, yeah. a, a, de- a dependent class. Or perhaps it. we
5: could give to, like, to like organizations that fight against abortion or something like that, some cause, as opposed right. to just
0: right. giving everything I mean, to... Well, of mm-hmm. course, there's a lot of good charities. There's prison ministries, uh, there's campus ministries, there's mm-hmm. uh, missionaries, there's uh, radio ministries, there's uh, anti-abortion ministries, all kinds of ministries you can give to. We need to be giving. We need to be helping the cause of the kingdom. And we need to be helping the poor. But let's face it, uh, a lot of times charities are operating rather wastefully. A large portion of their money isn't going to the poor, but it's going to the administration uh, here in the States or wherever they're based. Uh, it's it's not just so simple as saying, well, I'm doing mm-hmm. a good deed. I'm, you know, There's this organization that helps people in poverty, and so i give them money and I'll feel good about it. Well, that's, I mean, you are doing a kind thing and a generous thing, but you should as much as possible do research to see if you're really – if the charity you're supporting is really going to, you know, victimize anyone inadvertently, sort of uh, unintended consequences of your charity. Yeah. And uh, Thank you. so it's I think that we really we really should do some research about the charities we support.
5: Thank you, Steve. Thanks for answering. God bless you.
0: OK, David. It's always good to talk. you. Okay. God bless. Yes. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Our next caller is Max the Atheist from Portland, uh, Oregon. Hi, Max. How are you doing?
4: Steve, yes, doing great. Hey, I, I just wanted to kind of bring your attention to something. Uh, you and I have sort of kicked around the idea of having a, you an know, extended format debate. I think your words to me were uh, you set it up and, and you'll sh- I set it up and you'll show up. So that's exactly <laughs> what I've done. Um, Good. I just want to let you know to check your email. Uh, I actually, rather than have it in a, you know, like in a room or an auditorium where seating is limited – there's actually a YouTube channel called Modern Day Debate hundred and seventy four thousand subscribers, which I think would be a great opportunity for you to grow your ministry and listeners as well um, so yeah, I just wanted to direct your attention to the email and uh, reply to myself and uh, James is the, the moderator who'd be moderating and I just want I'd be very pleased to get that set up and and, and run it
0: yeah, as I said, if you set it up, I'll definitely show up and I actually just I was in Sacramento this week teaching place of people saying, you know, are you going to have a debate with Max? I hope so. And I was saying, I hope so, too. So I'm glad you got on that. Um, now, one, I'll have to say this. When we have a debate, we have to say, what mm-hmm. is the question we're debating? Okay. And what is the format? Are we right. going to have, you know, what, what length of segments are we going to have interrupted? How many rebuttals? That's kind of thing. So you decide that, and I'll go with whatever you decide.
4: Oh, wow, that's that's very generous of you, Steve. Well, I'll, I'll definitely uh, – we'll, we'll do it over email and, and hammer down a date, and that works for everybody, and I'm super excited to get that going. And, again, I think it's going to be a great opportunity to introduce The Narrow Path to a whole new audience. So really looking sure forward will. to it, Steve.
0: Well, that's great, Max. All, all right. right. Thanks for well, going. All right. Well, looking forward to it. Hey, have a go on, Steve. Bye-bye. Okay, I'll look for email. Okay. Thanks a bunch. All right. Max is a regular caller, and we've – uh Last time he called, we did – he said he'd like to debate, and I said I'd like that, too. So, you know, I put it on him to set it up, and he got went for it. That's excellent. So we'll we'll announce when that's going to be, when we know. You heard it first here, uh, and you'll also hear when we know when that's going to be. Okay, let's talk to Jimmy from Staten Island, New York. Jimmy, welcome.
6: Hey, Steve, and thank you for taking my call. Uh-huh. Um, you teach that – you. You you can lose your salvation. You're right. You can lose your salvation, but if salvation depends on what what you do, then keeping it depends on what you do. But if it depends on God's mercy, then it's a gift, and it's not reformation. It's regeneration. Okay. Uh, my question: Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. If you're put in Christ, if if someone is put in Christ by God, he is a new creation. The old creation has passed away. If one, you teach, if one apostatizes, which I've heard you teach, what does he become? Is the new birth reversed? Is the new creation undone? So it's basically the question is Second Corinthians 5.17. If someone's put in Christ by God, he's a new creation. Yeah. And, and that's, you, you say that's the new birth. And I just wonder, if you apostatize as you, as you teach, then what? What does this person become? And I'll take my answer over to you. Thank you. Okay, thanks for your call. Yeah, if a person apostatizes,
0: what he becomes is an apostate, not a Christian. Now, when, when Paul says, if a person is in Christ, he, Christ, is a new creation. We are in the new creation. And this is something Paul says in different words in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, And he says um, in verse 14, he himself, Christ is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of division between us and has abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man, it's a new creation. It's created in Christ. God created in Christ one new man. And we are in that new man. We are in that new creation. And Christ is a new creation. His body, corporately, is a new creation. We are in it. Now, if we're in it, we share in the life of it. It's very much uh, the same concept as what Jesus talked about, the vine and the branches. Although we're not talking about a body and its parts, it's the same idea. The branches on a vine are alive because the vine is alive and because they're attached to it. And uh, it's the life of the vine that is Enlivening the, the the branches that are attached to it, but Jesus made it very clear: if a, a branch may not remain in the vine, a branch can be broken off, and if that happens, the branch withers up. Why? Because the life that's in the vine is no longer in the branch, uh, because it's no not you know not remaining in it. Paul used the same imagery that Jesus used. I mean, Paul used the imagery of a, of a olive tree, and he said that uh, you know the saved. Uh, chosen Israel is an olive tree, and the believing Jews and believing Gentiles are attached to it like branches. But he said that unbelieving Jews uh, are branches that have been broken off because of our belief. And he says, and you who are Gentiles who are grafted in because of your faith, you can be broken off too if you don't remain uh, in it. So he says the same thing that Jesus said. That's, uh, by the way, Romans 11, 22 He said, Behold, the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severely on you, goodness, if you continue in in his goodness. Otherwise, you'll also be broken off. You'll also be cut off. So uh, Paul makes it very clear. Jesus makes it very clear that we have eternal life in Christ, whether we see that as in a vine or in an olive tree or in a a human image in the new man, the corporate Christ. A vine is a corporate entity. It has a stock and has branches it has leaves it has fruit you know it's got different parts same thing with an olive tree same thing with a body that's why Paul uses the expression of the body of Christ and we're different members and so forth but if you're in a body you share in the life of that body now the body of Christ is a new creation and if you're in Christ you are in that new creation in that new man that's created in Christ Jesus uh, as a new man and so you know you're you're in the new creation and you're part of it if you're in Christ. But if you don't remain in Christ, as Jesus said, you're no longer part of that vine. You're no longer part, as Paul said, of the olive tree. Or as we would say, using the imagery of a man, no longer part of that man. You've been amputated. Uh, so you're not, the life is no longer in you. So that's, that's how I understand it. That's, that's the way that I think the Bible teaches it. That our life is not in us, it's in Christ. And if we are in Christ, his life is ours. If we're not in Christ, his life is not ours. If we're in Christ at one time and later not in Christ, well, then his life was ours when we were in him. And it's no longer ours when we're not in him. Um, So this is how I understand. Now, you mentioned that salvation is a regeneration, not, I think you said, not reformation or something like that. Uh, I'm going to have to disagree. I think salvation in Scripture isn't only talking about regeneration. Certainly, that's one of the features. There's also something called justification, which is different than regeneration, but both are part of salvation. There's also, of course, uh, transformation, Paul talks about. We're being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. Um, there's uh, you know, there's what, what's usually called sanctification. Someday there's glorification. Now, all of these are what the Bible calls salvation. Uh, there's reconciliation. That's part of it too. Uh, there's redemption. That means being purchased. That's somewhat different than being regenerated, but it's the same, same uh, part. It's part of the same salvation. When you are saved, it's a holistic thing. It's not just regeneration. Being saved doesn't just mean uh, you've been born again. It means there's a whole bunch of things that have happened. You've been not just born again. You've been forgiven. You've been justified. You've been. Re- uh, you're you're now a, a, a living thing, growing uh, like a newborn babe. Uh, desired the milk of the word that it may grow of it. By it, Peter said in First Peter two two, so salvation isn't just getting born again. Uh, being born again certainly is a necessary part of salvation, but the Bible never makes out the whole of it. So if I'm born again, okay, and I'm 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 re- I'm reconciled to God and i'm being re- i'm being re- renewed and i'm being transformed into the image of christ that should go on until my life ends and then i and then i'll be glorified uh when jesus returns but uh just because i was born again doesn't mean i'm going to continue that's why the bible keeps saying to continue 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 and it warns about what happens if you fall away i mean paul also in colossians chapter 1 he said this He said that uh, he has reconciled you, verse 22 says, in the body of his flesh through death. Now, I believe the body of his flesh is actually referring to um, the corporate body of Christ, as as I understand it, uh, to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Now that's Colossians chapter one verses twenty two and twenty three it says that God has reconciled us in his body and so that we will be, so that He can present us holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. Well, that's what he intends for us. He's reconciled us so that when we stand before Him we can be holy and blameless and irreproachable. but he says, if indeed you continue. In the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So, well, that changes things. If you don't continue, and if you are moved away from the hope of the gospel, if you depart from Christ and you're an apostate, well, then he can't present you blameless and holy and irreproachable in his sight. So, which means that you've kind of truncated and interrupted your salvation. Salvation means, well, in my opinion, in the Bible, salvation is a relationship with Christ. Just like marriage is a relationship with your wife, okay? Or child uh, being a child is a relationship with your, or being in a family is a relationship between a child and a parent. Uh, the, the Salvation is the relationship. And a child is born into a family, but now the relationship exists as a, as a result of being born. Now there's a relationship, a parent-child relationship. A marriage takes place, a covenant is made. And now a uh, marriage exists, and there's a relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, you're born again. Now you're in a relationship with God. And, of course, in any of those cases, I mean, ideally, you're supposed to stay in those relationships. Those are good relationships. You're supposed to function in them in the way that your, your role is to function in them. But a child can disown his parents and run away. Uh, a husband and wife can separate wrongfully and, uh, and no longer you know live as in that relationship. And a person could do the same thing with God. Now, if a woman divorces with her husband, uh, there's, it's not a marriage uh, anymore. And if a person abandons Christ, it's not a salvation anymore. It's not the relationship anymore. So if you think of salvation, just means getting saved. And that means initially jumping through the hoop of accepting Jesus as your Savior or something. And then, and then uh, you know, you can't be unsaved. Well, you don't realize what you get into when you're born again is the salvation relationship with God, the saved relationship. And uh, staying in that relationship is required. Now, you said, well, but if you have to do it, it's not mercy. Well, no. You, if you had to do God's part, then his part is not mercy. But a person can be very merciful. Let, let's, let's just say the prodigal son comes home, and he doesn't pay back his father for the stuff that he took and lost and wasted and he in fact his father doesn't require anything of him except that he's now a son again he now has to still honor his father and respect his father and live according to the house rules but he's but his reception back is mercy to be sure the very fact that he he owes his father things that he can't repay means that his father receiving him it's it's all mercy but it doesn't mean that that mercy puts no obligation on the son Uh, The point is, the son repented of the neglect of his obligations. That's why he came home, to honor his father as he should have in the first place. Now he's back, he's expected to honor his father. That's part of it. Now, if someone says, well, if he has to honor his father, then it wasn't merciful. Well, that's that's a silly way of talking, it seems to me. I think his father taking him back and not asking him to pay anything back to him, that sounds to me like great mercy on his father's part. But there's still the sonship part. Once you're a son in a household... You clearly have things that uh, that belong to that responsibilities that belong to that uh, position. Let's see here. Uh, who's been here the longest? Daniel from Vancouver, B.C. Welcome to the Nail Path.
3: Hi, Steve. I'm glad that uh, that was my question about salvation, if you can lose or not. Uh, okay. But uh, my my second question is when when I was reading on. Uh, Genesis, uh, like, you know, Adam has been cut out from from the Garden of Eden. He became like us. Can you give me some, that explanation, please? He became like us? or oh, like God? Uh, yeah, God says the man
0: has become like one of us to know good and evil. Yeah, man didn't become exactly like God. For example, man didn't become invisible or omnipresent. But God said, no, he became like us, knowing good and evil, which is simply saying that Adam has become his own arbiter of right and wrong, which is really God's prerogative. But now Adam has assumed it and possesses it too. And that's all that it's saying, I believe. I'm sorry we didn't have more time to free your call. You've been listening to The Narrow Path radio broadcast. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. Check it out. There's all kinds of resources. They're all free. You can also donate there if you want at thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.